You know, I got to thinking, we're about to get into Second Peter. We're closing Second Peter out tonight. And I was thinking, how can I make this a little bit light? Because we're only talking about the end of the world. And there's just no way to get around it. That's what's in here. And I got to thinking, you know, most science fiction movies or superhero movies, the, 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 the context is the world's about to end somehow. If Superman doesn't come through or Batman doesn't come through or something doesn't happen to stop the end of the world, then the end of the world is coming. So Superman always comes through, Batman, whoever. Well, tonight, we really are talking about the way the end of the world is going to happen. The real end. Because it is going to end. And so, uh, I was telling Valerie before coming out tonight that... um, you know, the Bible's heavy, not in a terrible way, a bad way, but it just deals with heavy stuff. You don't get any heavier than the end of the world. Amen. So let's pray for divine illumination tonight. Lord, we just thank you for your blessing on the word of God. Lord, we know that we're approaching right now the sacred scriptures, the God breathed out word. And Lord, we pray that they will, uh, the word of God will build us up. The words of God will build us up in the faith. Lord, I pray that this word will change us, will rearrange us, will renew our minds, will strengthen our walk, will enhance our expectancy of Jesus coming back soon. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And let's breathe a prayer, church, and say with me, Lord, I receive this word as your word. Renew my life from this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. Amen. Now, next week, we'll bring a short message on Thanksgiving, and we will have a Thanksgiving service. But then the next Wednesday, I start on Jude, and I'm going to do Jude in two weeks. Now, if if you're not familiar with Jude, you're looking at me like, Okay, you're going to do it in two weeks. But if you know Jude, you're looking at me like, how are you going to do that in two weeks? I'm going to do it because God's going to help me. I'm going to do it in two weeks. Because after that, I'm getting married. So I kind of need to, I kind of need to be available for that. Right? All right. <laughs> All right. Now, last time we ended up talking about the Lord's long suffering. Remember that? Talking about the Lord's long-suffering. Not willing that any should perish. It says God is long-suffering, not willing that anybody would perish, but that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, to me, that verse blows hardcore Calvinism right out the window. And what I mean by that, if you don't don't know what Calvinism teaches, it is that some are chosen to be saved, some are chosen to be lost. If you're chosen to be saved, you're, you're the elect. If you're not, then you're just, you're lost. And it's all up to the sovereignty and the choice of God. But my Bible just now told me it's not his will that any would perish. I'm going to leave that alone because I'm not here tonight to talk about Calvinism. But I I like knowing when I preach to the lost, God's not willing that anybody listening to me would perish. And they all have a chance to repent and be saved. Now, as Peter's final letter comes to a close, he's going to talk about something called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, when you see that phrase in the Bible, the day of the Lord is talking about God's judgment. We, we call it judgment day. But the day of the Lord is a very specific phrase in the Bible. It is overwhelming in its scope, that is God's judgment on the day of the Lord, and it's dreadful in its execution. Folks, there is a judgment coming. And the Bible could not be more clear. If you're going to read your Bible, you're going to come across the, the theme of judgment all the time. But when you hear the day of the Lord, it's the day of judgment, and it's coming. Now, at first, Peter pinpoints the time of that. He says in verse 10 of Second Peter chapter 3, the first half of verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So the time of it is it's going to be sudden. It's going to be unexpected. When you see the day of the Lord, that phrase, 
you find that Isaiah is the first Bible character to use the phrase, the day of the Lord. You find it in Isaiah chapter 2, 12. It occurs 20 times in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, and Malachi, they all mention the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And then it occurs four more times in the New Testament. Paul says it twice. Peter once, that we are reading now, and John says it once. The day of the Lord, the day of God's coming judgment. Now, the awful event that Peter is about to describe and that John also describes in the Revelation that we have taught here a couple of times, the whole book, gives way to another day, and that's the day of God. The day of the Lord is different from the day of God. The Holy Ghost does not mince or waste any word. And he's the author of this scripture. So when you see the day of the Lord, it means God's coming judgment. But the day of God is different. The day of God is when a brand new heaven and new earth are created. Amen. Everybody say, there's a new world coming. Amen. Uh, The Bible says that the day is coming when God is going to create a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. And on that day, the Lord Jesus will deliver up the kingdom to God. It says in 1 Corinthians that God may be all in all. So there's the day of the Lord, God's coming judgment. There's the day of God that comes right after, right on the heels of the day of judgment. And the day of God is when a new heaven and a new earth are created by the hands of God. Now, Peter uses the expressions, the day of the Lord and the day of God, to pinpoint the time of the fearful judgment that he describes. When he says the day of the Lord, he's letting us know this is at the end of the millennium, when judgment falls, when God, well, we're going to read about it in a minute, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but The day of God immediately follows the day of the Lord. So when he uses those two phrases, he's helping us understand when what he's about to describe to us is going to happen. The day of the Lord marks the end of Jesus' millennial reign on earth and ushers in the eternal state. Peter says that this closing event of the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, suddenly and catastrophically. Now I'm going to talk about the millennium millennium in just a, a little bit more in a minute, but just stay with me because we're we're kind of going through some Bible topics that you don't hear a lot about anymore. And I think that's really unfortunate. You know I had somebody come up to me last week and say, "We looked everywhere for a church that would preach anymore the return of Christ." And we couldn't find them. And I said, "You got to be kidding me. How many did you visit?" And they said, "Too many." They said, we, we can't find anybody. They, they won't talk about it anymore. I said, well, you're in the right church here because I'm going to talk about it because it's a main theme of the Bible. But, but some of the things that have to do with the way last days and the end of time and the millennium and the great white throne judgment and then eternity are not often taught. So hang with me. We're going to touch on them tonight. So the time of Judgment day is going to be like a thief in the night, quickly, suddenly, unexpectedly, unannounced. Now, next, Peter is going to describe the totality of God's judgment when it comes. The second half of verse 10, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now look how he's telling us this like he's telling us what time it is. And yet he just told us how the world's going to end. Did you catch it? Are you with me? Everybody give me a don't. We got a case of the no nods tonight. Let me see a nod. Do this or do this. But do you get it? He just told us how the world's going to end in the second half of verse 10. Let me read it again. In which the heavens are going to pass away. The universe is going to pass away with a great noise. And the elements, that means the dirt, 
the creation of God, the planet Earth, the elements will melt, melt with fervent heat. Now look what the last part says. Both the earth and the works in it will be burned up. If this building is still here, it's, it's gone that day. Everything on earth is going to be burned up, incinerated, vaporized, removed, gone forever. He just told us about the end of the world. You know, it's amazing to me that an uneducated fisherman who Jesus called when he was at least midlife, at least in his midlife, over 2,000 years ago has just accurately described the nuclear age in verse 10. And he's also accurately described the atomic structure of matter centuries before scientists officially discovered it. I'm about to show you that. Let's take the word elements. He said the elements are going to melt with a fervent heat. Well, what does he mean by elements? What is that? This word in the original Greek language meant the components into which matter is divided. Literally, the particles that make up matter. Things that scientists, once again, would not discover for centuries and centuries more. Peter, moved on by the Holy Ghost, who was instrumental in creating the world, and knew exactly what he made the world out of and to be, and what the world consisted of, has just told Simon Peter, a crusty old fisherman saved by grace, the way the world's going to end, and he describes atomic structure. Are you with me? Yes. Yes. This just blows me away. How anybody can say the word of God is just some silly book of myth? Look at this. In today's language, the word for elements would be used to describe atoms. So according to Peter and the Holy Spirit who moved on him to write this, because he didn't come up with this on his own. He never would have if he'd have lived to be a billion. He'd have never come up with this uh, on his own. But he, he's, according to Peter... When God judges the world on the day of the Lord, the very building blocks of matter will melt. Now, I did a little research, and this is really astonishing to me because that is exactly what happens with a nuclear blast. Let's go back in history. July 16th, 1945, at 5.20 in the morning, the first atomic bomb was exploded in the arid wilderness of New Mexico. An enormous tower had been built of 10-inch rails, and it weighed 90 pounds a foot. This was an enormous tower. I don't know how high up it reached, but it, but it, it was huge. And every 10 uh, inches, it was 90 pounds. So this thing was tons and tons and tons and tons heavy. When the bomb exploded, the tower was vaporized. And its debris was tossed seven miles into the sky. Where the tower had stood, there was a hole 60 feet deep and 5,000 feet wide. Now catch this. For 18,000 feet in all directions, the ground was boiled, fused, or melted. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. Peter's use of the words fervent heat to describe the untying of the atom. And the resulting rushing, fiery destruction that follows it, to me, is, is, is nothing short of mind-boggling. I, I read this and I go, <laughs> you know, I know why Jesus chose who he chose. He chose, he chose a band of blue-collar workers who, who were not educated uh, as far as, um, you know, university-type education. They knew how to fish, and that's it. He chose them. And could Peter have ever imagined that one day he would sit down and the Holy Ghost would move across him, and he would describe the end of the world in prophetic terms and describe the nuclear age and describe the untying of the atom and describe the building blocks of matter. 
No. No. He also predicts by the Spirit that the heavens are going to pass away with a great noise. There he's talking about the universe, the heavens. And the expression great noise is from a word referring to the whizzing of an arrow rushing to its target. So he's saying there's going to be a whizzing, rushing sound of roaring flames when the day of judgment comes. He closes out his solemn description in verse 11. He says, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now, let me just uh, look at that word dissolved. It's from the Greek word luo. It's the first word I learned in Greek. The first word they teach you in Greek class is luo because it means to loose, to break up, to destroy, or melt. So he's putting in another, using another word to describe the same thing, that the atom is going to come loose. The atom is going to come loose. And when it comes loose, the earth and all the universe are going to melt. You know, Colossians tells us that our world is being held together right now by the word of Christ. Everything is held together by the word of Christ. Now, I take that to mean the word of Christ is holding the atomic structures of all matter in place. And so when he speaks, that holding of the atomic structures together, they're going to be loosed, luo, loosed. They're going to be broken up. They're going to be freed from their moorings, and everything will implode. The Bible is literally telling us that at the end of the millennial age, the elemental particles of matter that we call atoms are going to be untied or released, which is what an atomic blast does. Their energies, up to now imprisoned or held in check by Christ himself, will be set free. It perfectly describes an atomic blast. And by the way, that bomb that did that, scientists will tell you today, it's like tinker toys to the ones they have now. What it did is tinker toys. If one of what they have now went off on, say, New York City, just like that huge steel column was instantly vaporized, an entire city would be gone. Now, that's not the way the world's going to end, a nuclear exchange between men, but I firmly believe there's going to be a limited exchange. Man has never created a weapon he didn't use. Now, Peter then asks, now that he's really got their attention, does he have your attention now? He says, in light of these things that are coming, what manner of people ought we to be? And he answers, you better be holy and you better be godly because these things are coming. And he look, look what he says. Furthermore, those who are, verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, Now, he's going to repeat his prediction in verse 12. He's repeating. Remember I call him the apostle of remembrance? He's already repeating what he said in verse 10. He's saying it again in verse 12. We're looking for, we are those looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens are going to be dissolved, all the atoms are going to be unloosed, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. What kind of people ought you to be since you know that's coming? Holy and godly. So knowing that the world will one day come to a catastrophic end, we Christians, above all others, should seek to live holy lives with our eye of faith turned upward, looking for the return of Christ. Because folks, thank God, he's coming soon. There is an exit door, and it's marked J-E-S-U-S. There is an exit door from this judgment. His name is Jesus. So Peter has reinforced his point by again repeating how the world is going to end, melting with a fervent heat. So he has just now, very casually, very matter-of-factly told us about the end of the world. 
Now let's look at when it's going to happen. He turns to the Christian's hope. Verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for, read it with me, new heavens and a new earth. Now literally, folks, you've got to take the Bible literally unless it tells you not to. Literally, there's going to be new, a new universe and there's going to be a new earth. In which righteousness dwells. Hallelujah. No devil, no flesh, no sin, no lower nature, no temptation, no sickness, no disease. In which righteousness dwells. Let's say together, that's my hope. Let's try that again. About five of you did it. Let's try it again. Ready? That's my hope. This is the Christian's hope. Now, when he talks about the new heavens and the new earth, he's pointing to the end of the millennial reign of Christ at the close of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord happens at the end of the millennium. The Bible teaches that towards the close of the millennium, increasing numbers of people will render only feigned obedience to the Lord upon his throne as he rules the world from Jerusalem. I'm going to stop there and explain to you what that means. Now, this is what you don't hear much about. And I can't say that I understand this perfectly, but I understand it in part enough that I can teach it. Um, When the millennium begins, you remember in Matthew 25, Christ returns, and what does he do? He separates the sheep from the goats, doesn't he? And he knows who is who, who's his and who isn't. The sheep are his, the goats aren't. And when he does that, I want you to notice with me that those people are alive. Okay? The sheep are alive, the goats are alive. And he separates them. Now, when he comes back in his second advent, in his second coming, He's going to land on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is going to cleave from east to west. He's going to install his throne in the city of Jerusalem. When Jesus returns, you say, Jeff, do you really believe this? Of course I believe it. I believe a virgin conceived. I believe that a dead man got up from the grave. I believe that he's going to blow a trumpet and we're all going up. Why would I not believe that? You know why I believe it? Because I believe in God. Okay? So when he comes back, he separates the goats from the sheep. Now the sheep, stay with me, they're alive. So where do they go? As Jesus establishes his kingdom. Now we have taught here, but I'll remind you again, when Christ returns, who's he return with? The saints. The Lord thy God shall come and all the saints with thee. So there's going to be two kinds of people in the millennium. Those who were alive when Christ returns, but they're righteous. Jesus separates them as sheep. They're righteous. They're they're saved. They made it through the tribulation. They might have been saved in the tribulation. Because there's going to be a whole bunch of people saved during the tribulation. 144 Jewish witnesses, Jewish Billy Grahams, 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams preaching the gospel all over the world. There's going to be a whole lot of people saved during the tribulation. So that's part of the sheep. And I believe part of the sheep that he recognizes and separates at his return are also Jewish people who have believed. Now they enter the millennium along with the saints who return. Now, the saints who returned have glorified bodies. They're never going to marry. They're never going to have children. They they are like the angels of, of God, Jesus said. And they're going to rule with him. That's one of the promises. Enter into the joy of the Lord. You've been faithful over a little. I'm going to make you what over much? Ruler over much. So when he comes back, we're not going to sit on clouds and play harps and float around and get bored in three hours. There's going to be tasks. Jesus is going to rule the world, and he's going to task his people, the sheep, with various responsibilities. But there won't be sweat. It won't be labor like we know it. You won't be tired at the end of the day. Okay? So you're going to have glorified bodies with the ones that came back with him, but the ones that stay, 
are also in the millennium. Now, watch this now. They still marry. They still have children. You with me? They still have children. They have families. And they live long because the curse is lifted. Now, you say, how do you know they have children? Don't you remember what Isaiah said? He said the little child is going to play around by a snake hole where there's a poisonous snake. Little child. A little child is going to play in the presence of what would have been a venomous, dangerous, life-threatening viper before the return of Christ. But that's all going to end when he comes back. So all hostility, species to humans, is going to end. And I, and I love this. All carnivorous activity is going to end. Because God made the animals, folks, to be vegetarians. He did not make them to eat each other. That's not of God. I, I don't care how many times I see it. When I see, some people like these these um, African shows where it shows, you know, a leopard chasing down uh, this beautiful um, antelope or deer or whatever. I don't like watching that. That poor thing is terrified. I don't like it. That's all going to end. The lion will lay down with the lamb in the millennium. But you're going to have, you've got the people who have come back with Christ, glorified bodies. But the ones who were there when he returned and entered the millennium are going to marry. They're going to have children. And as time goes on, these children and their children and grandchildren, and remember, a thousand years goes by. That's the millennium. A thousand years. That's why it's called millennium. Okay? So as the centuries roll, there comes a parting of the heart that many of the children and grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren of the original Jesus coming back sheep are going to depart from him in their hearts. They're not going to follow him. And they're going to resent his rule out of Jerusalem. And so John says in Revelation 20, verse 7, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. Because remember, what happened to him? He was thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. Now, that rascal gets out again for a brief time. Why? God has a reason. Why? He's going to get out. He's going to be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations. Who's that? The nations that have proliferated for a thousand years and now a lot of them, their hearts aren't with Christ ruling out of Jerusalem. And the release of Satan for a brief season will reveal whose hearts are truly with Christ and those whose aren't. I told you this was deep. Everybody say this is deep. But it's the Bible. This is in your Bible. This is your Bible. I'm not making this up. I didn't get this out of the library. Right? Now, at the close of this season of testing, Satan is going to be hurled forever into the lake of fire. Do you know that until he goes into the lake of fire at the end of the millennium, nothing is in the lake of fire? Nothing. The lake of fire is there. And we're told in the Bible it was created for Satan and his demons. But they don't go until the end of the millennium in the day of the Lord. That's when they're hurled into, they're the first ones to split the lake of fire wide open. And right behind them will go Antichrist and the false prophet. They're the first ones to go into what we have always imagined to be hell, the, the burning lake of fire. Now, when this happens at the end of the millennium and the judgment and, and Satan has been judged. He's been hurled into the lake of fire along with Antichrist, along with the false prophet, along with all the demons. Then the day of the Lord strikes. And the day of the Lord causes God to detonate the entire universe. The entire universe is detonated right then, at the very end. And the day of the Lord is right behind, or right before, I should say, right before the day of 
of God. Because as soon as it's detonated and everything has been burned up, like we just read Peter prophesying, then that is when out of heaven, well, let's just read it. Revelations 21, 2. Following this unimaginable conflagration, a new heaven and a new earth will descend, John writes, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I know this is a lot, but this is what the Bible says. You know, you, 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 just, you start connecting the dots, and you know, here comes Jesus, second coming, second advent. He's here now for a thousand years. He's going to rule out of Jerusalem. He gathers all of the citizens of planet Earth. He separates them, sheep from goats. The sheep enter into the millennium with him. But then you've got the ones who came back with him, and they've already got glorified bodies. For a thousand years, there is peace, joy, no devil, the devil's bound. But the hearts of some of the children and great-great-great-grandchildren of these original sheep depart from the Lord in their heart. And the devil reveals who they are when he's released for a brief time. And then, boom, it's all gone. You talk about the Big Bang, that's the Big Bang. Okay, hold that because there's more to come. I know that's a lot, but I'm not done. I've got to finish this chapter. I could go home right now, and so could you. I could use a cup of coffee right now, right? Now that Peter has described what is coming, and boy, did he describe it, he turns to exhorting the saints. Verse 14, wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things. How many of you look for such things? The return of Christ. Do you look for such things? Peter assumed if you're a Christian, you're looking for such things. Be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Now, the new heaven and earth to come are going to be incredibly beautiful, glorious, totally absent, any war or conflict of any kind. But the the people to whom Peter was writing... We're living in Nero's world, and it was a bad, sad, nightmarish world of persecution and danger and torture and all kinds of things that were unimaginable, and that's who he's writing to in the first century. So Peter says to them, be diligent to live without spot. That means don't become defiled by the filth of the world. Don't, Don't let the world's dirt get on you. Have you ever noticed you don't have to clean, you don't have to dirty your floor on purpose? Just living in this world does it for you. You got to clean it. You got to do the same thing with your clothes. You got to do the same thing with your body because everything in this world gets dirty, right? But spiritually speaking, that's true as well. James, let me see if I can remember it. James quotes, he says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the widow and the orphan in their affliction." And to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Okay? So he's saying, since all this is coming, hey, keep yourself clean. Keep it clean. And then he says, be blameless. Which means, don't go do something that that gives the world the opportunity to point at you and criticize you, justifiably so, because you put yourself in a bad light. Try your best not to. And then verse 13, or verse 15, rather, he says, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Now, everybody perk up, because I need this. I need this. He's, he's telling us this. We're to interpret God's silence. Have you ever listened to this world and wondered how lightning doesn't come through some ceiling and, and zap some of these people on these news shows or these vile television programs. Have you ever just wondered, how come, how come lightning doesn't, where is God? These people, they, they go on there and they, they, they sully the name of Christ. They blaspheme. They, they run their foul mouths. They, they say the worst things about God and Christ and the Holy Ghost and the Bible and the church. And you say, where is God? Peter says, here's how you interpret his silence. 
He's not willing any should perish. That's how you interpret his silence. How many of you have said, if I was God, <laughs> that, that network, wherever they're headquartered, would be vaporized like that steel pillar when the bomb fell. I would, hey, how many of you know if you had been God, most of your world would be vaporized by now, by you, right? Thank God we're not God. But here's what we're not to assume. When, he, when nothing happens to these people, we're not to assume he's not there or that he doesn't judge sin. He is there and he does judge, but his patience is a marvel to behold. Amen? And next, Peter says something very important about Paul's writings, verse 15 and uh, 16. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. <clears throat> Paul, in other words, excuse me, has chimed in on some of these things. And as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these same things, judgment coming, uh, total destruction of the world, all those things. Paul had spoken about them as well. And then he says, speaking of Paul's writings, some of what he writes about is hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also, what are the next words? Read it with me. The rest of the scriptures. So if anybody says to you, and, and precious Jewish people will say this, they will say, well, I just don't believe Jesus was the Messiah at all, and I don't believe the New Testament is inspired like the Old Testament. And so that's why I believe verses like this are here, because he's telling us Paul's writings are scripture as much as the Old Testament is scripture. This is an amazing statement. We need to hear this. They were, the, Paul's writings, they were and are as much a part of the God-breathed Bible as all the rest. Peter recognized that some of the apostles, including Paul, had been chosen to add to the volume of the great book, the Holy Bible, with New Testament writings that are every bit as inspired as the Old Testament. So let me just drop this on you and make it real simple. All right? Second Peter is as inspired as Genesis. And Genesis is as inspired as Second Peter. The book of Revelation, the last book, is as inspired as Genesis, the first book. The first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Torah, are just as inspired as Philippians. But ready? Philippians or Galatians or Ephesians, or Romans are just as inspired as the Pentateuch. They're all the God-breathed Word. They're all the Holy Bible. They are all the Word of God. Genesis to Revelation, it's all the God-breathed Word of God. It's 66 books of divine revelation. It's God's love book to us. And I love it. I love the Bible. Paul's teachings flooded the world with light, even though they were hard to grasp. All that he had to say about the church as Christ's body, nobody had ever talked that way. The liberated Christian conscience, Israel, spiritual gifts. Who, t who talked about spiritual gifts but, but until Paul? He listed all of them, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and all of that. Uh, the rapture of the church, that was Paul. These were all totally novel and unique, and sometimes they were difficult to grasp. And tell, truth be told, I think Peter had a hard time understanding a little bit of what Paul wrote. But he said, they are holy scripture. Now, Peter says, here's what happens to some of Paul's writings and the rest of the Bible. Untaught people and unstable people twist Paul's writings to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. What kind of people? There's two kinds, untaught and unstable. They've never been taught the Bible or they're unstable in their life. Those two kinds of people twist the Bible. Now, the word twist is really interesting. It means to strain or to torture. It is to pervert the word of God. It means you are putting the Bible on a torture rack and, and torturing 
what the scriptures were intended to say. Have you ever listened to anybody and you go, oh, they're torturing the word of God. Come on, hello? You ever listen to somebody and go, say what? Where'd you get that? Listen, folks, our own generation is filled with this kind of torture teaching. Can I say that again? Right now, on Christian TV, Christian radio, not me. Much as, I, much as lies within me, it won't be me. But books, there's books in Christian bookstores that should never have been put in a Christian bookstore. Because they're loony. They're crazy. It's crazy stuff. <clears throat> Men and women routinely stand to teach a Bible they clearly have never studied. They twist and they torture the meaning to communicate what they want it to say, not what it was intended to say. They redo and they remake scripture to their own liking. And you know why so many people look at you like a calf stares at a new gate when you teach this? Because they don't know their Bible well enough to amen what I'm saying. Because they don't catch it when they hear it. That's why on Wednesday nights we're going through the Bible. I want you to know the Bible. I want you to, when you hear something phony and fake or off or tortured, I want you to go, that didn't come from my Bible. That's not sound. The person of Jesus Christ is routinely marginalized or transformed into a Jesus we don't recognize. His work on earth is misinterpreted or misrepresented. His teachings are recklessly misinterpreted and intentionally miscommunicated. All the cults pervert the person of Christ, all of them. They twist and they torture the road to salvation with false concepts. They present another gospel and they present another Jesus. And if you don't know the real one, you'll never know what I'm saying. The only antidote to the flood of false, weak, and watered-down teaching of today is to sit under sound teaching and to learn how to interpret the Bible for yourself. Amen? Amen? One of my own rules for listening to a teaching, and I listen to teachings. Listen, I go to sleep listening to a message every night. I, I, I go to two sites. I go to sermonaudio.com, and I go to sermonindex.com. And they all have, they have thousands of messages. And I'll just pick a message, and I go to sleep listening to the Word of God. That's, I want to go to sleep that way. I want to hear the Word of God when I'm going to sleep. Now, um, so I, I saturate my brain with the word. And I am going to know my Bible well enough so that when I hear a teaching and I hear them often enough that is off, that is not sound, that is not teaching Christianity the way it was presented, and this can cover a whole spectrum of things, morally, financially, maritally, salvation. There's all kinds of major topics the different teachers touch on, I, I can tell if it's not the Bible because I've so read the Bible. Now, I'm not saying I'm foolproof, but I'm close. I know it. I know what Jesus said. I know what he didn't say. I was watching. I, I have satellite TV for one channel only. If I couldn't get this channel, I'd cancel tonight. And it's the ID channel where there's forensic files, <laughs> sinister ministers. Oh, yeah, that's a show, sinister ministers, wives with knives. I mean, there's all kinds of, but, but it, now you're looking at me like, Pastor Jeff, you're watching violence. No, these are crime shows. They're crime shows, real ones from real life. And I love watching the way they're solved. Get myself out of this real quick here. <laughs> Don't go out of here going, Pastor Jeff listens to violent stuff all the time. I don't know about that play. No. Watch this now. There was one I was watching, and, and a man's wife w- was abducted. She was abducted. And the kidnapper did not want um, her to ever return. The kidnapper wanted her husband to believe that she willingly walked away from him to go be with someone else. So he's, he's abducted the wife, and so here's what he decides to do. He decides that he's going to send the husband, and by default, the police, a letter supposedly from the wife. 
Honey, I've decided to leave you. I haven't been happy for a long time. You know, I hope that you and the kids are great. I'm moving on. Please don't try to find me. That kind of thing. They read it to the husband. And the husband said, that's not my wife. And they said, well, how do you know it's not your wife? He said, because I know my wife. That's not the words that she would use. That's not the way that she would say it. That is not the way she would express herself. They say, are you sure? Oh, I'm absolutely sure. I've lived with this woman for all these years. I know exactly what she would say or wouldn't say and how she would say it. She was found. The guy was busted. He was thrown into prison and it made my day. Now watch this now. That's the way you got to know your Bible. That's not what my Jesus would say. I know Jesus. That's not what he would say. That's not what he would do. That's not the way he would express himself. That is not what my Bible would say. That is not what my Bible teaches. Well, how do you know that? Because I know my Jesus and I know my Bible. Come on, everybody. Give the Lord a hand of praise. Come on. We need discernment. As Peter's last chapter winds to a close, he admonishes the Christians who have been reading 1 Peter, 2 Peter, to beware, beware. The devil's on the prowl, as he told us in 1 Peter 5, uh, chapter 5. The devil's on the prowl, looking who he may, for whom he may devour. He says, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware. Everybody say beware. beware. Lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Now, as they say, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. This next to the last verse contains, in a nutshell, the whole reason Peter wrote Second uh, Peter. He's con- and, and why he constantly reminds them and us of certain truths, that we would not be led away by false teaching. That little phrase, led away, means carried away. Speaking of being kidnapped, that's the word. Led away means carried away as if by a kidnapper or a captor. Don't allow false teachers to kidnap you, kidnap your brain, kidnap your theology, kidnap your Jesus, and take you out of your steadfastness in Christ. If somebody comes along with some fancy new interpretation of Scripture, Peter says, don't go. Can I tell you something? Remember this. Are you ready? If it's new, it's probably not true. And if it's true, it's likely not new. Because my Bible is thousands of years old. But you know what? It's true. If somebody tells me, I got a new revelation, I say, really? Enjoy. See you later. Because if it's new, it's not true. Now here's his closing advice. And then Peter, after this letter, is martyred, hung upside down on a cross. So here we go. Verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Best advice ever given. Our focus and our aim is to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. All kinds of graces mentioned in the Bible. Saving grace, sovereign grace, sustaining grace, sufficient grace. Grace, 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 and more grace, because our God's a God of grace, amazing grace. Has been poured out on every child of God. Now when he says knowledge, and I'm closing with this, we're to grow in the knowledge of our Lord. The Greek word gnosis is used here, gnosis. And it means knowledge acquired by learning and effort and experience. Okay? Now, tonight we're growing in the knowledge of the Lord by effort and learning. You took, you, you took the time and trouble to get in your car and brave traffic and come here to learn the Word of God. You're leaving knowing more about Jesus than people that didn't make it. You got a better understanding of the Word than the ones that didn't make it. Okay? That's learning, that's gnosis, learning and effort, but also experience. Grace and growth come by revelation by learning and by experience we experience i there's things i know about jesus i'd have never known 
if I had not gone through some experience. You know? How are you ever going to know he's your shepherd if you don't go through a valley and you've got to take his hand? And he takes your hand and walks you through to the other side and you go, you know what? The Lord is my shepherd. I knew he was a shepherd, but now I've been through a valley. He's my shepherd. You know, how are you ever going to know that the promises are true if you don't have to pray for one to come to pass and believe for it and experience God bringing it to you? How are you ever going to know he's a provider if you don't experience his provision or a healer if you don't experience his healing or a deliverer if you don't experience his deliverance? Healed people heal people. Delivered people deliver people. And you know what? People who go on with Jesus for a period of time know Jesus. Amen. Amen. Are you glad you came to church tonight? Let's stand. Boy, we learned some heavy stuff tonight. Whoa. We went all the way to the end of time, the end of the world, and came back again. Amen. Let's lift our holy hands to the Lord and worship him. Thank you, Lord. Father, we praise you, bless you, thank you for the true word of God. Praise your mighty and your holy name. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, when we read these things and how you have told us exactly how time will end, how the world will end, and what is on the other side of that ending, a brand new beginning. You've told us, Lord, you've reached down to the end of time and told us what's coming and we're amazed at your word we're amazed at the word of God and how you know the end from the beginning and how you are the sovereign God who lives in eternity and not in time and space we praise you Lord we thank you that you are an amazing God let's worship him 